to Grok Science. Uh, my name is Danny, and today I'm being joined by Professor Joseph Henrik, uh, who wrote a really fascinating book called The Secret of Our Success, or How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Welcome, Professor Henrik. Nice to be with you, Danny. What is, uh, what is your book about, The Secret of Our Success? <clears throat> Well, the central idea is that to really understand human evolution and human nature and our psychology, you need to take into account that humans have had uh, two different inherited systems. So, of course, there's genetic evolution that everybody knows about. But intertwined with that is this idea that we have a cultural inheritance system that, unlike other species, we have, we, by learning from previous generations and by passing information on, we've actually created a second system of inheritance, which produces tools and large bodies of know-how, things like fire and cooking, as well as other things like social norms and institutions that have actually shaped our genetic evolution, altering our anatomy and physiology and, and eventually our psychology. Huh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So um, does, does that mean that like the genes that we have, uh, they're actually for things like, like using a stove or like using a smartphone? We have smartphone genes or something like that? Well, of course, smartphones haven't been around very long, so that's uh, unlikely to have had any effect on our genome. But uh, I think a good example is fire and cooking. So, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about this, but fire and cooking probably goes back uh, at least a million years or so. And if you look at our bodies, they actually present a mystery, our digestive tract. So our, our teeth are too small for a primate of our size who eats our diet. Our stomachs are too small, and our colons are too short. But these anomalies make sense if you realize that we're a species that evolved to eat cooked food that, and, and processed food. So cooking is one of the ways in which we process our foods. And that we essentially pre-digest our food. We do work that other animals have to do within their digestive systems or with big teeth or with long colons. Um, we do it through, through breaking the food down before we put it in our mouth. And this has actually allowed our bodies to evolve such that we have much less energy devoted to our digestive tract. Uh, but, of course, we don't innately know how to make fire or cook. We have to acquire that culturally, and actually making fire is relatively difficult to learn. So that's a case where this culturally transmitted trait has shaped our physiology. I see. So what would happen then if we lost some of the cultural tools in which that we grew up with genetically? Uh, you mean, uh, so, I mean, one of the things that I, I do in the book to try to illustrate the importance of culture to, to human adaptation and to our survival is by using cases of lost European explorers, so cases in which some hapless group of Europeans ended up stranded uh, either in the Gulf Coast of Texas or in the Arctic or in Australia, and show that without this large body of know-how that the local hunter-gatherers have, uh, these explorers can't survive. They can't do basic things like find water or food or build shelters or effective ways of traveling. But that shows that we're actually addicted to or dependent on this large body of cultural knowledge. Now, um, another thing about your question is that it might be that once we lose, uh, you know, if we were to lose some of these things, then it would send our, our evolution off in a new direction. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. So it's not if we lost these uh, cultural adaptations that we've gained, it's not that there would be a collapse of the species or anything. It's just that we would then be on a different tra trajectory uh, to becoming. Well, a... I mean, it 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 could be. So that's certainly happening in the modern world. So um, 
you know, now injuries and diseases that would have, uh, you know, would have selected out people who didn't have the right immune system or the right genetic defenses or who had, uh, you know, problems in their knees or whatever, um, they, you know, now survive. So that's going to alter our genetic evolution in one way. But one of the points I make in the book is that actually goes all the way back. So you can imagine in ancient Homo erectus when they first started using stone tools to cut meat and their teeth started getting smaller and they became dependent on those stone tools to chop up that meat and break down the hard sinew. Uh, and that altered their genetic evolution. Hmm. Oh, yeah, very interesting. So uh, could you speak perhaps to uh, some of the ways in which this cultural information is transmitted between human beings? Yeah, what's really more remarkable about humans when you compare them to other species is our cognitive abilities for dealing with things like spatial problems or um, quantities are not innately better than another species. So uh, in the book, I discuss uh, these experiments in which uh, you compare human children, two-and-a-half-year-olds, to other species of apes. And in lots of different cognitive domains uh, about quantities and about solving problems in space and tracking numbers, the apes do quite well as well as the humans. But where the humans really clean up is on imitation and learning from other members of their social group. So being able to observe others, copy their strategies and their goals and the details of how they do stuff. And that's what allows, or one of the main things that allows humans to have this accumulation of cultural know-how, where what one generation learns can be passed down to the second generation, the next generation. They can add a little bit to it, and it accumulates over time. And this is something we don't see in other animals. Is it just through watching people that uh, we we can get this? Or I guess it's reading as well as any communication? Well, anything that, that facilitates that, that information transmission accumulation. I mean, one of our key abilities that seems to develop early is this observational learning. But another thing humans seem particularly inclined to do is, is teaching. So, you know, teaching is a costly for the teacher, but uh, it can really improve cultural transmission. So part of our package of things that allow this cumulative cultural evolution, uh, teaching is also probably part of that. Now, some of the great revolutions in human history probably had to do with ways of improving cultural. Key developments over history, over cultural evolutionary time, that improve this process uh, are things like reading and the printing press, uh, literacy, uh, any kind of communication technology, mail, and of course, more recently, the Internet. Uh, these are all things that are going to massively interconnect minds. And uh, humans, for their innovation, seem to rely on what I call the collective brain, which is a lot of our great ideas and our ability to accumulate culture depends on the size and interconnectedness of, of the social group. And larger, more interconnected groups seem to be better able at generating this cumulative culture of <clears throat> fostering innovation. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, for regular users of internet forums, they would definitely agree with this notion that sort of uh, an incredible wealth of knowledge that comes from being able to connect with people who are passionate about the same topics. Yeah, this seems to be well, I mean, well attested in, in, in lots of different literatures, actually literatures that, that are often uh, unconnected from each other. So in the book, I, I show that even in small scale societies that larger, more interconnected societies actually have, they make fancier tools that are better adapted to their environments. And if a, if a group suddenly gets a smaller population or gets broken down and disconnected, they'll actually lose information and know-how over time. Is there, a, is there a way in which all human beings are currently connected, or are there like, there's still splinter groups from our society? 
Yeah, I mean, well, so I mean, in some kind of grand sense, there's a everybody's connected through through some number of links. But of course, there remains groups in remote parts of the Amazonia, in remote parts of New Guinea, uh, that are relatively disconnected uh, from from the larger world. How does cultural transmission happen between sort of a developed, what we would consider a developed nation versus a developing versus a, a one that's torn by conflict or something like this? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of uh, differences that are relevant for cultural transmission. So, I mean, obviously, a lot of our cultural transmission in, in modern Western societies is done through education. Uh, so education creates a trip. So cultural transmission from one generation to the next. And of course, literacy and reading. And in other societies, there's fewer literate people. There might be, people might get fewer years of education or no education. Uh, so these, so cultural transmission channels are certainly different. Traditionally, in small scale societies, of course, nobody's literate. So cultural transmission is going on through narratives and stories and also just, you know, showing and following and observing the, the kind of standard old-fashioned way of doing cultural transmission. One of the things that's interesting, though, in this is that um, there's lots of things, uh, lots of elements of cultural transmission that are hard to uh, transmit unless you're actually physically with the person. So uh, cities experience this. It's hard to start a new industry in the city. You can't just import uh, a bunch of books about how to do the industry. You actually have to import people who know how to set up the industry so they can begin to train people who already live in the city how to do the industry. So um, that's an interesting case where, you know, the, uh, the other forms of cultural transmission don't quite do the job. Mm-hmm. Because there's in this idea of cultural transmission, the thing that's being transmitted is some sort of knowledge, but that could be as broad as, like, science, but it could also mean art, it could also mean music, this sort of stuff as well? Right. So it's, I mean... It, Conceptually, it's information that's stored in people's heads that got there by social learning, by attending to and learning from others. Uh, and that, you know, in the modern world, it could be through lots of media, books and internet. But, um, you know, traditionally it was face-to-face or through stories and whatnot. But not all of that stuff is, is useful. So, so what distinguishes the useful stuff from the not useful stuff? Right, great question. So one of the things I develop in the book is that people not only learn from others, but they're selective about who they pay attention to. So even at a young age, infants, young children use a whole suite of cues to figure out who in their cultural milieu and their social world they're going to zero in and pay attention to. So children and adults use cues of uh, prestige and success and skill and speaking the same language uh, and gender uh, all of this affects your likelihood of learning, attending to and learning from different individuals. So this creates a selection, a selective filter. So only some information makes it from one generation to the next, and it's affected by this selective attention and memory that derives from the fact that we're adapted to learn from others. So those cues I mentioned are actually products of genetic evolution. We're, we do them because they allow us to zero in and, and get to information that's more likely to be adaptive, and that leads to the the transmission of all, all this different kind of stuff, and it's why culture can be adaptive. Uh, when I was going through school, we talked a lot about learning strategies, and you know, like certain learning strategies are going to work better for some people, and certain will work better for others. But are you saying at some level those are genetically encoded? That like there are populations that could be identified through genetics that are better at 
one versus the other? Well, no. So what I mean is that, um, yeah. So I'm here. I'm thinking here of you know kind of universal patterns across all societies. So uh, these are these are kind of who you should pay attention to to strategies. And one of the interesting things about those cues that individuals use in figuring out who to learn from, are that is they often use uh, also use self-similarity cues. So I mentioned one of them, sex. So uh, uh, males tend to copy males and females tend to copy females. But we also use other patterns of similarity, so things like physical similarity. And this causes people to be able to zero in on those more likely to have information useful to them uh, in, later in life. So it's one way in which you could get more of a customized learning strategy if you're, in fact, you know, one of the things you're learning is, in, is learning strategies. I see, I see. <clears throat> um, so in yeah in the book you made that you make this distinction of prestige versus dominance um, and this fits into what you're talking about now the the cues for learning could you explain a little bit more about that concept? Sure. So uh, one of the things once humans begin to evolve this tendency to learn from more successful individuals, uh, then you're going to have uh, a bunch of individuals are say going to key in on the same more successful member of their social group. So say it's young males trying to learn to be a good hunter, they're going to all figure out who the best hunters are in the community and want to hang around them. Well, this actually gives rise to a kind of social status because others believe you have useful skills or information, they want to be able to access that information. And to do that, they've got to hang around you, they've got to pay attention to you, and they want the, the model, the one who has this valuable information, to be positively predisposed to them. So the learners pay deference. They sort of, you know, do things, little favors, and um, basically try to get the teacher on on their side. And so this is what I call prestige status in the book. And this is interesting because it's a different form of status than we see in other primates. So humans also seem to have something called dominant status. And this is what we observe in baboons and chimpanzees. Um, you know, you see it in professional wrestlers. It's that it's characterized by that stance where you have a broad wide chest and arms in the air and a wide leg stance. Um, you know, it's, this, it's the signal that the dominant chimpanzee uses when he wants the other chimps to, to show him deference or to give up a spot. Or so is dominance like associated with, with punishment? Right, it's associated with force or force threat or coercion. So um, individuals uh, get dominant status by in some way being able to control costs and benefits. Mm -hmm. And prestige is more when you idolize someone, like when you have a hero. When you when you idolize it um, intuitively or emotionally because you want to be like them or they have traits that, that you want to acquire. Uh, but it's ultimately related to the fact that you're evaluating who you think might be a good person to learn from or to hang around, uh, more successful members of your community, people who others look up to. So one of the interesting prestige cues that humans use is we pay attention to who other people mm -hmm. are paying attention. Yeah. That's really interesting in terms of, uh, I guess, I think about like institutions that push forward uh, idealized versions of members of that institution. Right. So they're trying to they're trying to tap into the prestige psychology. So you see this emerge in lots of places once you, once you kind of have a theory of it. So things like the celebrity endorsement. You know, why do we care? Uh, that LeBron James, uh, what he thinks about home and auto insurance, but yet he's able to do a commercial and presumably get people to buy certain kinds of home and auto insurance, even though what he's really good at is basketball. 
Um, and it's not clear that there's any crossover there. But because he has this prestige and people look to him, he's able to, to sell other products that have no obvious link to basketball. Interesting. So in some ways, these methods for learning, they may not have a rational basis when it comes to analyzing why we're picking up this information. It's all happening in the background. Yeah, the way to think about it is they have a rational basis in the sense that they have an evolutionary foundation and that they were adaptive over human evolutionary history. Uh, but, of course, they operate often unconsciously, um, and people don't know they're doing it. And, of course, sometimes they may you know, take you uh, in the wrong direction, and they can go catastrophically wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, I just wonder about this idea of, or I mean, we talk about inequity in the world and stuff like this. If so much of how we operate in terms of transmitting this very valuable information is just internalized from evolution, how can we be, you know, how are we going to build the sort of uh, idealistic society of egalitarianism? <clears throat> well, the, um, I mean, the way that's been happening over history is through competition among societies. So, you know, societies that are able to maintain more quality have been able to endure longer and engage the populace more in, you know, common defense and public goods and all those kinds of good good things. So the way I set that up in later in the book is to suggest that, you know, different societies are coming up with different institutions that are uh, more and less better at that. And so we tend to have a spread of those institutions that do that better. Uh, so why did you uh, write The Secret of Our Success? Why at this moment in, in time to write it? Uh, well, I mean, I've been working on these questions for, uh, well, I, when I finished the book, it had been about 20 years that I'd been working on it. So it was kind of a way of laying down a way mark and, you know, putting together all that I thought I'd learned um, over that first couple decades. And what do you hope people take away from it in terms of, like, uh, the variety of people who may be exposed to it. Are you targeting a specific audience, or do you have some hopes for the way this information may be used? Well, so there's lots of different um, things that could be useful to different kinds of groups. I mean, one is that the way we typically go about um, trying to build institutions, uh, for example, is to use ideology, right? So, so different social sciences, different um, uh, political groups, they, everybody's got implicitly or explicitly have a theory of human nature. And so what my book's trying to do is really lay out and say, well, what's, our current, what's the current state of knowledge on human nature? What does it look like? I mean, one of the key elements is this, uh, our, our dependence on learning from others and the importance of that and how we do it. And then I discussed dominant prestige and I discussed the importance of social norms and how we expect there to be social rules and how we internalize those get people to be altruistic and get them to internalize altruistic social norms. So there's a lot of kind of raw material for, well, how do you build a better institution to get people to behave in better ways and say, be more egalitarian if that's what you want. Um, so that's one thing. Another part of this is the collective brain idea. So what if you want to energize innovation? What, what do we know about how human societies energize innovation? Well, the key isn't a few geniuses, right? The key is a free flow of information amongst more and more minds. Uh, that's what seems to, to, to create the recombination. So it's much more of a group thing than it is the, the, the heroic genius that you sometimes get from history textbooks and whatnot. Hmm. Great. Yeah, that sounds like uh, very useful and inspiring ideas. <laughs> oh, 
So uh, in this part of the show, we've been trying to bring back a segment uh, called the Grokatron 5000. Uh, basically, it's a competition where a listener from our radio show has the chance to win a copy of your book, The Secret of Our Success. Uh, but in order for him to win that or her to win that, uh, you'll have to get three of these four multiple choice questions correct. So uh, will you be willing to play with us today, Professor Henrik? Uh, sure. Thanks. Uh, so the first question is, uh, oh, well, basically uh, in your prologue, you mentioned that you worked in uh, aerospace engineering for a while. That's right. It's a comparatively short amount of time, I guess, in the span of your career. But actually, this is quite common. People change careers all the time. And so the theme of our questions today are people who have changed their careers and found some success in the new place that they ended up. Okay. The first question is, uh, this famous 1922 Nobel laureate was originally an assistant examiner at the Federal Office of Intellectual Property in Bern, Switzerland. During that time, the scientist published four papers on Brownian motion, the equivalence of mass and energy, special relativity, and the photoelectric effect. Who is this famous scientist? Is it? Albert Einstein. Perfect. <laughs> okay, that's one. Uh, two. Perhaps the best-looking, if not most famous, silver screen actor is known for having worked as a carpenter before first being cast in this iconic career-defining roles as Bob Falfa, Han Solo, and Indiana Jones. Uh, this actor is... Harrison Ford. It is. But the question actually concerns, during his tenure as a carpenter, <laughs> uh, he was briefly ah, okay. employed as a stagehand. So for what legendary rock band in 1968? Was it The Who? The Village People, The Doors, or Justin Bieber? Uh, let's see. G give me those again. The Who, The Village People, yeah. The Doors, or Justin Bieber? Rock Band in 1968. Uh, okay, yeah, you're way out of my area here. <laughs> um, I'll go with The Doors. The Doors, that's correct. All right, one more, and hopefully we can get this book out to somebody. <laughs> uh there's a, a scientist named Akito Morita. He studied math and physics in school, but later he went on to become a famous businessman and co-founder of Sony. Uh, today, of course, this is a huge company, but the first product that they made was a huge flop. So which of these products, released in 1945, was Sony's first product? Was it uh, a live robot of Abraham Lincoln? Was it an electric rice cooker? Was it a multifunctional radio, telephone, and television, or Pokemon? Um, let's see. Um, I'll go with the rice cooker. And the rice cooker it is. <laughs> Thanks for playing our game. Nice. And uh, Keelan of Chicago, Illinois, will be receiving a, a copy of your book. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Grox, uh, Professor Henrik. Um, it was good to have you. Okay. Good to be with you, Danny. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.